few years back, I latched onto a song that has been a great comfort to me from time to time. Uh, sometimes this, I don't know if this happens to you, but I just kind of listen to a song over and over and over again, almost kind of wear it out. Um, I was listening to it in the car over and over again, uh, and so much so that my kids kind of began to pick up the song uh, and, and sing it from time to time. And it's probably uh, been a year since I've actually played it in the car uh, itself. Uh, and yet, every once in a while, I'll still catch one of my kids kind of humming a tune or, or singing the few kind of key phrases from it. Uh, it was written by Christopher Miner. It's entitled, His Love Can Never Fail. God's Love Can Never Fail. It's a great title. Uh, but the, the heartbeat of the song is even better than the title. Uh, just, just think about why that might be for a moment. His love can never fail. Why, why is that? Why is it that God's love can never fail? Because He can never fail. So uh, Christopher Meyer wrote, quote, I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. Do you, uh, do you hear the truth buried in that verse? The truth buried in, in that first verse is that even though we may not know where the Lord is leading and guiding us, we can walk with faith because we know him. And we know that He is faithful. Do you know this God? Do you know the God of the Bible? Well, He is the God that we get to learn about and delight in this morning as we study Numbers 21. Numbers 21. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers 21. If you are following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, Numbers 21, the passage beginning on page 129. 129 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, uh, allow me to remind us of what we've studied so far. Having used Moses to redeem the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, God called Moses to do that work, to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The Lord uh, began to use Moses, we see in the book of Numbers, to lead the people of Israel, this nation, lead them to the promised land of Canaan, to this earthly promised land. And throughout the course of this journey in the book of Numbers, uh, we've seen Israel struggle along the way. Their journey has been fraught with grumbling and complaining and rebellion. And it seems like every chapter in the book of Numbers is filled with God's judgment on this sin. There's complaint after complaint. And yet, thankfully... Every occasion of God's judgment has also been accompanied by a display of God's mercy and grace. And the chapter that we're setting together this morning, Numbers 21, is no different. The, the chapter opens, frankly, with kind of a pleasant surprise for what we've been reading in the book of Numbers. Israel wins a victory where she has previously been defeated. But then something completely unsurprising happens. The people of Israel complain and so suffer God's judgment and receive God's mercy. Numbers 21 concludes with Israel going on a kind of a victory march 
as they get closer and closer to the promised land of Canaan. All in all, while this chapter reminds us of some of the struggles of the past, progress is being made toward the fulfillment of God's promise of entering the promised land. And the lesson that Numbers 21 holds out to us is that we are to look to God in faith. We are to look to God in faith. His grace is greater than all of our sin, and He is the one who subdues all of our enemies. And so we look to Him in faith. We're going to study Numbers 21 in three sections under three headings. First, God is pleased to redeem the past. God is pleased to redeem the past. Second, God is pleased to forgive our sin. And third, God is pleased to keep His promises. I believe there's a handout provided in your bulletin there. Those are the points of the sermon. Let's go ahead and begin with our first point. One, God is pleased to redeem the past. And as we think about this, read Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. Numbers 21, verses 1 to 3. When the Canaanite... The king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way to Erethim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Now as we begin to look at these verses, I actually want us to begin at the end. Take a look at that last word there in verse 3. The name of the place was called Hormah. This is a deliberate signal from the author. It's one of many signals that were marching toward the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In fact, by this point... Uh, we might be in the last two years or so of their wandering. Just a few moments ago, I mentioned that uh, Numbers 21 brings us closer and closer to the edge of the promised land. In some ways, this mention of Hormah brings us back, at least mentally, to what happened on the edge of the promised land earlier in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 14. So keeping one finger here in Numbers 21, flip back a few pages to Numbers 14. Numbers 14, you may remember, is, is a pivotal chapter in the book. God had led the people of Israel right to the very edge of the promised land, and He instructed them to go in, to enter into the promised land. But sadly, the people of Israel, they refused and rebelled against God. They were afraid of the inhabitants of the land. They saw that they had strong and mighty armies, and they decided not to go in. And this was rebellion, the Lord said. And in response to their rebellion, the Lord told the people of Israel that a whole generation, everyone 20 years old and up, would die in the wilderness. And that they would wander for 40 years. He told them that that period of 40 years would pass. And that their children, their little ones, everyone 20 years and under, would actually go into the promised land. Needless to say, uh, the, the people of Israel didn't think that that was such a good idea. They didn't like that idea. So they decided, you know what, on second thought, let's just go ahead and try this. Let's go ahead and go in on our own. And they tried to enter the promised land by their own strength. And this is what happens in the verses that we're about to read here in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verses 39 to 45. So I want to read Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 to 45, and especially take a look at where the passage ends. 
Verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Now verse 45 ends. Where verse 3 of our passage in Numbers 21 ends. At Hormah. Go ahead and flip back to Numbers 21, uh, verses 1 to 3. Some seven chapters later, we see a battle at Hormah and we think to ourselves, and now for something completely different, right? God has been pleased to redeem Israel's past failure where they had been scattered by their enemies at Hormah. What happens at Hormah this time is completely different. It is different on multiple levels. It's true that the enemy is the same. The Israel faced the Canaanites before, but this time, instead of going against the Lord's commands, they asked the Lord to go with them. Instead of going it alone, like they did in Numbers 14, here they wish to go in the strength of the Lord. And without prompting from Moses, Israel looks to the Lord in prayer. Finally, it seems in the book of Numbers, that Israel has come to understand that possessing the land that the Lord has promised demands that Israel look to the Lord for victory. And this also reminds us of another matter. Chapter 20, you might notice, closed with the death of Aaron and his son Eleazar taking up the role as Israel's high priest. When we studied, when we studied that chapter, we saw what had been will not always be. The passing of the priestly robes of Eliezer was a signal that God was still keeping His promise to Israel to bring Israel's little ones into the promised land. And here, that reminder is being brought into view again. The previous outcome at Hormah in Numbers 14, where the older generation rebelled against the Lord, seems to have been reversed in Numbers 21. And the victory at Hormah. And our hopes are kindled that perhaps the younger generation might not be like the older generation. Perhaps this victory is a signal now that the, the younger generation, perhaps comprises the majority of the people of Israel, are marching out in a different direction than those who rebelled against the Lord. Well, the next several verses show us that just as Adam passed on sin to his sons, so the older generation passed on the root of bitterness to the younger generation. So let's now turn and consider our second point, that God is pleased to forgive our sins. And as we do, read Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. 
And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, you might have noticed that um, from, from verse 3 to verse 4, there's something kind of, of an abrupt transition. We, we move from Hormah to Mount Hor. And, and if you've actually been paying attention to kind of the, the geographical, uh, careful attention to the kind of geographical locations in the last two chapters, you've probably noticed some kind of geographical oddities. Uh, we tend to jump from place, one place to a, another, and there's a fair amount of space between the places. And at this point, um, while Moses is concerned to clue us into the fact that we're getting closer and closer to the edge of the promised land, his overriding concern is to direct our attention to what should be the object of Israel's faith. That's God. To put it differently, uh, Moses' main concern in the narrative is not geographical, but doxological. Uh, Moses is more concerned about Israel's love of the Lord than he is about Israel's place in the land. So this material is arranged kind of thematically. If Israel is to make it through the wilderness and into the promised land, they will need to do so depending upon the Lord. That's the point that Moses wants to drive home. Even Moses' mention of the Red Sea is intentional in this regard. What should that mention of the Red Sea remind his readers of? Well, God's rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that should excite Israel's love for the Lord. But what should we think about that mention of Edom there in verse 4? When did Edom last appear in the book of Numbers? Edom appeared just a chapter earlier in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. Edom last appeared just after Moses' display of unbelief and Israel's complaining against the Lord. So this, this reference to Edom is, is ominous, and rightly so. For what follows is the people of Israel once again complaining and grumbling against the Lord. And at this point in the book of Numbers, we're almost tempted to kind of grow weary and bored of this complaint. We've, we've heard this one before. This is now at least the seventh time in the book of Numbers that the people of Israel have referred to Egypt with a sense of, of longing. It's at least the third time that they've complained about food or water. Have you ever been in a conversation with a person when, when a person's kind of complaining and you just want to say, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what you're saying? Listen to yourself. Do you, do you recognize that you are complaining about God's kindness to you? It's like you almost want to grab the people of Israel by the collar and say, listen to yourself, Israel. Do you recognize what you're saying? You're saying, why did God free us from slavery in Egypt? Why did you provide this manna 
for us, this manna from heaven for us. Why have you been so patient and generous with us? The food isn't worthless. It has sustained them in the desert. The food isn't worthless. It's life-saving. And you're complaining about it. Now, before we come down on Israel too hard, we need to confess that we've been snake-bitten too. We've been bitten by the snake of Genesis 3. The snake who led Adam to lament his place in the beautiful garden where he had everything he could ever want. The snake who led Adam to begrudge God his kind providence has infected us with the poison of Adam's first transgression. And the sins of grumbling and complaining are resident in our hearts too. If we were in that garden, we would have done the same thing as Adam. If we were in that wilderness, we would have grumbled and complained too. We know who we are. We're not in a dangerous desert, and yet we complain about first world problems. We complain about the Wi-Fi on the airplane. We complain about cell phone reception in the mountains or at the beach. We, we complain about the closest Uber driver to us. He's five minutes away. Why can't he be closer? Uh, we complain about the wait at our doctor's office. Uh, we complain about the wait at restaurants. And how long it takes the barista to make our tall, skim, no-whip, two-pump, whatever it is you have at Starbucks. We complain about these things. We complain about trivial things. And we complain about not-so-trivial things, too. We complain about the providences that God has brought our way. And at one level, the, the complaints of the people of Israel about food and water were not inconsequential or trivial. I mean, in a desert, you kind of need food and water to live, right? So this is, this is not an inconsequential reality that they're facing. God, He met their necessities. But they complained about how He did it and what manner He did it. We too complain about significant needs and we complain about how God has met them too. And let's remember what our complaining and grumbling strikes at. Complaining is not like a, a victimless annoyance. It's not as if complaining goes out there and just kind of floats away into the air. Complaining offends someone. In fact, it offends the most important someone in all of the universe. Complaining and grumbling is fundamentally an attack on God's wisdom or goodness or both. When we complain, we, we may be saying that God is not wise. He's, he's, led, he's not led us well and we're in danger. Or we may be saying that God is not good, that He's withholding something good from us. Or maybe we're attacking both God's wisdom and goodness, complaining that where God has led us is both unwise and unkind. Do you see how complaining, grumbling is an attack on God's wisdom or goodness? Do you realize that when you and I complain, that, that we're attacking God, that we're saying that He's a terrible king. 
and that we could have done much better. Complaining and grumbling is a direct assault on God's rule and reign. Children, youth, young adults, I I wonder if you recognize this about your complaining. Now, I've talked to you in this sermon series in Numbers about complaining before. Uh, But the Lord raises this concern multiple times with the children of Israel because they struggled with complaining on more than one occasion. And I'm guessing that in between the last time I spoke with you about complaining, you might have complained since that time. I know that I have. And, And so I know that I need to hear this again. I need to hear what I'm about to say to you uh, over and over again. Did you know that um, when you're complaining about something, your parents or your teacher or your coach has legitimately asked you to do, that you're not simply expressing disappointment, but that you're venturing into the realm of questioning God's goodness or wisdom or both. You're effectively saying, God, I don't like this situation that you've put me in. The authority you've put me under and the task that you've allowed me to be called to. There there is a difference between seeking to understand a situation and complaining about it. And let me encourage you to, to talk with your parents or another mature Christian about what is really involved in our complaining. And parents, let's confess that far too often our response to the complaining of our children is to complain ourselves. And let's call out to our God and plead with Him to forgive us of our complaining. And let's confess our sin of complaining to our children too. We complain, and so did the people of Israel. The Lord's response to their complaining is completely unsurprising. Just as He judged their complaining in the past, so he judges their complaining once again this time by sending sending fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is the Lord's judgment and discipline upon the people of Israel. The wages of sin is death, as the Apostle Paul would later say. Many people of Israel died. What is the purpose of such a a visible display of the Lord's judgment and discipline. It is to bring sinners to repentance. And that's precisely what happened here, isn't it? The, The Lord disciplined those whom He loved, and they were brought to repentance. The people of Israel confessed their sin, and they asked their mediator, Moses, to plead with God for mercy. To be specific, the people of Israel asked Moses to pray that He would take away the serpents from us. Moses did pray, but the Lord in His wisdom chose not to take the serpents away. Instead, the Lord commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole so that everyone who was bitten could look at it and live. In fact, everyone who did look to the bronze serpent did live. But this wasn't a mere kind of glancing at the bronze serpent. There it is, great, have a good day, moving on. No, this is a a kind of fixed gaze. That's what the original language intends to communicate. It's a a deliberate looking, a a faith-filled looking. Looking to the objects and believing that God would heal. 
And this bronze serpent ultimately points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ Himself told us that this was so. In John chapter 3, verse 14. So, keeping one finger here in Numbers 21, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, and you can find the, the passage, John 3, on page 888. And if I get that page number wrong, somebody feel free to tell me I did. I think it's 888 though. John chapter 3. And I want us to look at verses uh, 14 and 15. But let me just give a little bit of context. Uh, in, in the context of John 3, in, in relation to Numbers 21, it's really quite fascinating. Here Jesus is speaking about the need for a new heart. The need of being born again. Jesus is telling a teacher of the Bible, Nicodemus, that if you are to see the kingdom of heaven, if you're to be saved, you must be born again. In other words, if you're to make it to the promised land of heaven, then the Holy Spirit must give you a new heart. Now, this is something that we cannot give ourselves. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus has kind of effectively backed us into a corner and said, you are helpless. You are helpless. You need a new heart. You can't give it to yourself. You are helpless. So what are we to do? We are to do the only thing that we can do. And that is look to the one who can save us. The only one who can save us. To put it simply, look to Jesus Christ and believe. So read John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Do you see how Jesus reads Numbers 21? He reads it as a type foreshadowing His cross work. The bronze serpent is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Just as that serpent was lifted up so that the people of Israel might have physical life, so Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross. And just... And just as the people of Israel had to look to the bronze snake for physical healing, so we have to look to Jesus for spiritual healing. Jesus had to die on the cross. Notice there in verse 14 that Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. It has to happen. Why? Well, it has to happen so that as verse 15 makes clear, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This was always the heavenly plan of God. Jesus would come down from heaven and He would be lifted up on the cross so that those who look to Him in faith might have eternal life. This is what the work of the Spirit and being born again produces. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die so that the helpless, so that you and me, would be helped. Jesus had to die so that all of those who have given in to the lie of the serpent in the garden might be healed. You see, we, just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, just like the Israelites in the desert, have sinned and complained against God. We have decided that we know what is better for our lives. And so we strike out and we live in our own way. That is what sin is. It is living according to our own rules, our own ways. 
It's throwing off and rejecting God's rule and way. Sin is rebellion against the one who made us. The one whom we owe our lives to. The one who gave us life and breath. And just as the consequences of Israel's sin against God in the wilderness was death, so also the wages of sin, the cost of sin, is death. Now, friend, be be honest for a moment. You know that your sin against God has brought you little to no good. It's a lot like walking off the designated path on a hiking trail and being bit by a snake. Your sin has brought you no good in this life. And apart from God's help in Christ, it will bring nothing but punishment in the next. Because of our sin, and we have all sinned, Because of our sin, we all stand in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sin forever in hell. And we need help. And the good news is that God has provided help in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus was fully man and fully God, and He lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God. He never sinned, not once. And yet He was willingly lifted up on the cross to die for sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment due to them upon Himself. He died bearing the wrath of God, the punishment for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and look to Him in faith. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him, proving to us all that His life and death in the place of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now, Jesus invites each and every one of us here today to look to Him and be healed of the disease of sin and death. Jesus calls us to believe that He lived for us the life that we have not lived, that He died for us the death that our sins deserve. And that He was raised from the grave for us so that we might have eternal life and one day be raised to live with Him. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, then I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And if you want to know more about what it means to look to Jesus Christ in faith for salvation, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news of what it means that Jesus Christ was lifted up so that we too might be lifted up in glory with Him. Now, turn back to Numbers 21 because you kept your finger there, right? It's on page 129, I think. Numbers 21. I wonder as we flip back to Numbers 21 and think about uh, this passage, if you had the same question that I had initially about verses 7 to 9. I don't know about you, but uh, after kind of initially reading the passage, I wonder to myself, so, so why didn't God answer Israel's request to remove the snakes? The Lord's sending of the snakes was an act of discipline. It was His appointed means of driving Israel to repentance and humble faith. Now perhaps think to yourself, but didn't Israel repent? Isn't that why they asked Moses to pray to God? 
Yes. And we don't repent just once. As Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. This younger generation was just as sinful as the older generation. And they needed to continue to repent and believe. They needed to continue to look to the Lord in faith and live. As we learn about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. The Lord uses discipline to direct us into the path of righteousness, into the path of repentance, and into the path of life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, too often we view the discipline of the Lord as unloving, when the truth is that the Lord Himself has told us that His discipline is loving. The, Lord, the Lord's discipline is loving, and it has life-giving effect for those who have been trained by it. And in fact, perhaps it is here in Numbers 21, verses 10 to 35, the last section that we're going to look at together. Perhaps it is here in Numbers 21, verses 10 to 35, that we are nowhere more hopeful that the Lord's discipline has had its effect in the people of Israel, of encouraging the younger generation to continue to live in repentance and humble dependence upon the Lord. Yes, these, these next 25 verses are something of an account of Israel's travels and victories, but there's so much more than that. In these next 25 verses, what is implied is that the new generation is marching forward in faith, in humble dependence upon the Lord. Yes, they, they are still in the wilderness, but where their parents had failed to trust the Lord, they seem to be showing evidence of trusting the Lord. Let's begin to look at our third and final point now. God is pleased to keep His promises. God is pleased to keep His promises. Read uh, Numbers chapter 21, verses 10 to 20. Verses 10 to 20. And the people of Israel set out and camped at, in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ai Abir, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, from the Arnon, for the Arnon is in the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa, and the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extend to the seat of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continue to beer, that is in the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to, Mat to Matana, and from Matana to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Now, do, do you notice anything strange about these verses? And no, I'm not thinking about kind of the names and whether or not I pronounce them correctly. No. What is strange is that something is missing 
all of the complaining and grumbling is missing. Normally, in the book of Numbers, as we've been kind of reading through the book, uh, when we've been reading, whenever kind of Israel gets to someplace new, they've got a complaint to give. They're traveling from one place to another, and they get there, and they complain. They complain about how they're not in Egypt, or they complain about food or water. Complaining and grumbling has been relentless up to this point. Every new place, every new occasion is an occasion of grumbling and complaining. And here we're told about more than a handful of places. But how many complaints are we told about? Zero. In fact, what has the murmuring been replaced with? Music. The self-pity has been replaced with songs of praise. And about water, no less. The people of Israel have complained about water a lot in the wilderness, but here they sing about it with joy. Why? Because as verse 16 makes clear, the Lord has given it to them. It, it almost seems like we're, we're looking at a renewed relationship between the Lord and the people of Israel here. The Lord gave them water. And, as, and in the next several verses, the Lord gives the people of Israel something else. He gives them victory over his enemies. Read Numbers 21, verses 21 to 31 now. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into your field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and, and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabuk as far, uh, as far as to the Ammonites. For the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. For Heshbon was in the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sion be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Zion. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sion. So he overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far of Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Now, the, the first few verses of this section set us up to think that we're about to run into a wall. That Israel's about to be stopped, dead in her tracks. Like the people of Israel ran into a wall of Edom's army in Numbers chapter 20. The people of Israel, just like they did in Numbers 20, they, they politely request to kind of pass through a territory and use the king's highway, just like they did with Edom. They're once again denied access and they're once again met by a strong army. This time, however, instead of being turned away, 
they turn away King Sion's army. They not only turned him and his army away, but they also took his land and cities for their own possessions. Did you notice as we were reading how many times that word all kept turning up? They took all of his cities and all of his land and they took all that he had. And what do the people of Israel do? What do the people of Israel do after their victory? They sing again. They sing and this poetry and these songs are provided to us to show us Israel's joy and delight. It reminds us of the time when Israel came up out of Egypt when they faced the wall of the sea with the Egyptian army bearing down on them, about to be defeated. But the Lord came through and gave them victory. And what did Israel do once they got on the other side? They sang for joy to the Lord. These Israelites are delighting in God. No longer are they a bunch of sad sacks walking through the wilderness complaining about every little thing. Now they are marching like men on a mission full of merriment and music as they go. And they keep going. They keep going in verses 32 to 35. And here the curtain is kind of pulled back for us as to why they were able to keep going. It was because the Lord was giving their enemies into their hands. Read Numbers 21, verses 32 to 35. And Moses sent to spy out Jazir, and they captured his villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against him, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. What are we to learn from all of this? We are to learn that the Lord is keeping his promise to bring the little ones of Israel through the wilderness and into the promised land. He is keeping that promise that he made all the way back in Numbers 14, the same chapter that recounted Israel's being defeated at Hormah. And he is showing us how he is going to do it. He will do it. He will lead them there. He will have the victory because he is a God who keeps his promises. Notice toward the end of the chapter, we have the Lord saying there in verse 34, I have given him into your hand. So we saw at the beginning of Numbers chapter 21. If you look back up to verses 2 and 3, you'll, you'll see Israel request for the Lord to deliver their enemies into their hands. And the Lord has done just that. He's doing just that. Numbers 21, while chronicling the victories of Israel, their sin and their progress toward the promised land, Numbers 21 is fundamentally about our God. That's why each of the headings of this sermon began with God. Because this chapter from beginning to end is about God. And this is where I want us to conclude. Numbers 21 is about our God who is able, and who in fact does, redeem a sinful people's past. It is about our God who is kind enough to send judgment so that his people 
might be led to repentance and receive His mercy and forgiveness. It is about our God leading this sinful but forgiven people home to the promised land. Does that sound like the life of anyone you know? Brothers and sisters, that is the life of every Christian. You and I have a disobedient and rebellious past that God is redeeming. And guess what? Just like the old sins of grumbling and complaining reared their ugly heads in the lives of the people of Israel, so our indwelling sin continues to rear its ugly head in our lives from time to time. And what are we to do? Well, we are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing that we can do. We need to cry out to God for forgiveness and look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ who is leading us home. We will face battle after battle in the wilderness of this world. And some we will win and some we will lose by giving in to our flesh, our past sins and our transgressions. But we can be sure of this. The Lord Jesus will not lose one of all whom He has called to Himself. He will bring His people home. So keep looking to Christ and don't stop looking. He was raised up on the cross so that we who look to Him in faith might be raised up in glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are a God who can never fail. Failure is antithetical to your character. You always make good on your promises. And your promises are always good. And your ways are always good and just and right and merciful. And so Lord, we give you thanks that you are redeeming a sinful people like us. We give you thanks for sending Christ and lifting Him up so that we might be saved. And we give you thanks that you will keep your promises to bring us home. Oh Lord, we give you thanks and we rest in our Savior. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our closing song is entitled, The Church is One Foundation. That's number 350 in the hymnals provided. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your hymnals. Number 350. The church is one foundation. In this song, we confess that Jesus Christ was lifted up for us. Or in the words of, of verse 1 there, From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her. And for her life, he died. This song even expresses a sense in which we keep our eyes fixed on Christ as we wander through the wilderness of this world and face battles. So in verse 3, we'll sing, Till, that is, until, until the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let's sing the church's one foundation. Please stand as we sing.